Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. When my kids were little, occasionally they would ride their bikes while I went running. So Jonathan was in elementary school, and I was going running. He said, I'll ride with you, and so he did. And as we were running riding, he started asking me questions about sex. Really good questions. So I gave him really good answers. And the more questions he asked, the more answers I gave him, and the faster and faster he pedaled. So at that point, a 10-kilometer run, I was generally running probably about an 8.15, 8.30 pace. By the time I finished, I did the last mile on the 7.15. That is how fast he was pedaling. But you know, when the subject is sex, all of us pedal a little bit faster. And the church has done so much damage when it comes to this subject. And it's puzzling because the entire Hebrew scriptures, all of the Old Testament, robustly speak about sex. Ever read the Song of Songs? I mean, that'll make you blush. And Jesus said nothing negative about sex, so where did the church get its bad ideas about sex? It took 500 years, and it happened through Augustine. If you know anything about the life of Augustine, he had some unresolved sexual issues, shall we say, and those actually he brought into the church. And from that point on, the church has been a mess when it comes to the subject of sex. And at no point in time was it any worse than the end of the 20th century here in the United States in the evangelical church. It was what was known as the purity movement. I've got a good friend, Linda K. Klein, who wrote a book called Pure. That book has been quite popular. And she was interviewed on Fresh Air by Terry Gross. It was one of the 10 most listened to shows of the year. That's how much of a problem that is when it comes to the former evangelical world. Basically, what the church has said, and she says in her book Pure, that the church taught her that you're not allowed to have any sexual expression whatsoever until you finally marry someone of the opposite sex. That that is the only sex that's okay is sex in marriage with someone of the opposite sex. And she said, for so many of us, it caused us to not be able to appreciate and enjoy sex, period, once we did get married. By the way, she's going to be speaking at TEDx Mile High on November 12 at the Buell Theater. I've been working with her on her, um, on her talk, and it's really going to be good. This has been such a ubiquitous problem in American culture. But the bottom line is the church has messed it up when it comes to sex. But there is, in fact, a Christian sexual ethic. 
We learn it on Jesus' last day of public ministry in answer to the final public question he was ever asked. You say, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. You've talked about this before. Uh Uh-huh. I've talked about this question and answer before because it is, in fact, the heart of the Christian message. The final question asked to Jesus was, which of the 613 laws is the most important? Now, you have to understand, at this point in time, that's all the religious people cared about was those 613 laws. You were a good follower of religion if you followed all 613 laws. In fact, that was actually too easy. The religious leaders decided, so they had written literally thousands more laws. And so Jesus answers just three things. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. And then he said the thing that really upset all the religious leaders. He said, yeah, on this are all 613 laws based. All of your religious laws, yet they all come down to this. Love God, love neighbor, love self. And right there, in those three commands of Jesus, we have all the sexual ethic we ever need. The first question we want to answer is, does my expression of my sexuality allow me to love God? Well, how exactly do we love God? Somewhere we've gotten the notion that loving God means singing praises to God and telling God how great God is and how masterful God is and how awful we are. And I have three grown children. And if my children sang songs telling me how great I was and how awful they were, that I would not consider them showing me love. It would be flat out weird. So how can my three children show their love to me? Ah, it's easy. By living authentically. If Jonathan, J.L. and Jaina live authentically, if they flourish and thrive and live wholeheartedly, that's all the love I need. They are, in fact, loving me. If they are living authentically in every area of their lives, if they're flourishing and thriving in every area of their lives, if they're living wholeheartedly, then I can smile because they are in fact loving me, including in their sexual lives. So the first question we want to ask ourselves about our sexuality is, does my sexuality allow me to love God? Here's the answer. If you are living authentically in your sexual life, If you are thriving, if you are flourishing and living wholeheartedly in your sexual life, it is, in fact, pleasing to God. That's actually what Paul is talking about in his letter to the church at Rome in the first chapter, when he says, some of you have taken up a sexuality that is not natural to you. Well, the truth is that God made all of us with a natural sexuality. When we go against that natural sexuality, whether it's straight or gay or bi or asexual, it's not healthy for our psyches, it's not healthy for our souls, and therefore it does not make God happy. So we are in fact showing our love to God through our sexuality when we are living authentically as sexual beings and when we are flourishing and thriving and living wholeheartedly. But now that brings up a tough question. What if you are not in a situation where you are living authentically when it comes to your sexuality? I can answer that question. I lived the answer to that question for 60 years. 
I know now that my natural sexuality was always as a woman with a woman, that I, in fact, am a lesbian. But I remained married for a very long time to a woman while I was living as a man because I loved that woman and I loved my children. And truth be told, had I been able to do it, I would have stayed as a man for the rest of my days because of my love for them. So that would have meant in that particular realm, no, that would not have been my most whole self, my most authentic self sexually. And so sometimes you'll make that decision for a greater love to not live authentically. But on the whole, on the whole, when we have the choice to do so, and in my case, finally, it became no choice. It was something I felt called by God to do. Our sexuality is pleasing to God if it's authentic, if it's who we are, gay, straight, bi, whatever. If it's authentic, it's pleasing to God. If it allows us to flourish and thrive and live wholeheartedly, then our sexual life loves God. Second test for our sexual life, does it allow me to love my neighbor? And here, will keep my neighbor, the person with whom I am having sex, the person that I am in a sexual intimate relationship with. So, in fact, my sexuality is godly if it allows me to live authentically and the other person to live authentically, and if it allows both of us to flourish and thrive and live wholeheartedly. This isn't rocket science, folks. Now, there are some things that never answer those questions in the positive. There are some types of human sexuality that are never okay, not in any place, any time, any circumstance, never okay. So, any kind of sexual abuse, never okay. Pedophilia, never okay. Incest, never okay. Frauderism, rubbing against someone else to get sexual satisfaction, never okay. Exhibitionism, never okay. Voyeurism, never okay. They're never okay because they're not living authentically and because they're not causing you or the other person to thrive or flourish or live wholeheartedly. And here's a little tougher one. Anytime you're in a sexual relationship that has an unequal power structure, it is potentially not a healthy sexual relationship because it is not showing love to the other person. So when are we showing love to the other person in our sexuality? Well, I think it's important to note that our sexuality is predispositioned to be godly. That's right. At our core as humans, our predisposition as sexual beings is to be godly in our sexuality. That's because in the human mind, in the human soul, Spirituality and sexuality are so closely intertwined the two cannot be separated. So in fact, if you are living wholeheartedly in your sexuality, that is in fact by its very nature pleasing to God. Let me ask you a question. Doesn't matter what culture, what age, what language, what ethnicity, what people group, what is the one phrase spoken at the point of climax more than any other on earth? Oh, God. And we in the United States had a couple of four-letter words to it. And what do all of those mean? What are they all expressing? They are expressing awe. Because our spirituality and our sexuality are so closely intertwined, the two cannot be separated. 
So if in my relationship with another person, it is causing both of us to feel awe, it is causing both of us to live authentically, it's causing both of us to live wholeheartedly, to flourish and to thrive, it's healthy. Now we mention a few things that are not ever okay. There's a whole nother class of things that may or may not be okay depending on the circumstances. And these we call paraphilias. A paraphilia means quite literally next to or beside love. Paraphilias, there are over 250 of them. You can look them all up if you like. That'll be an interesting evening. There are over 50 of them in the DSM-5 that those of us who are therapists follow as we take a look at human sexuality and all kinds of other things. There are eight common paraphilia. The four most common paraphilia are sadism, finding sexual satisfaction at the pain of another, masochism, finding sexual satisfaction through your own physical pain, fetishism, which is finding sexual satisfaction through an object. Often, it'll be something like rubber or an article of clothing, often an article of women's clothing. And the fourth most common among the paraphilias is sexual cross-dressing. And it's important to note, sexual cross-dressing and being transgender are two completely different things. Being transgender is a gender identity issue. Being a sexual cross-dresser is a sexual paraphilia. 99.9% .9 of the time, it is straight men who find sexual satisfaction dressing as women. So if you're dealing with someone who's trans, do not ever assume that that person is or was a sexual cross-dresser. We were not. We are, in fact, transgender. But you take a look at those four and all eight of the paraphilias, and they're actually quite common, particularly among males, not exclusively, but particularly among males. So a study was done in Canada four years ago of a thousand people asking them about the eight most common paraphilias. How many people were interested in one or more of them? How many people had practiced one or more of them? It was an anonymous survey, but 45% of the people said they were interested in a paraphilia. 33% said they had practiced one or more paraphilias. Now, it was an anonymous study, but still we know people tend not to be honest about this one, even when it's anonymous, plus, hey, it was Canada. <laughs> I mean, is anybody really going to tell the truth about their sexuality in Canada? They're just so polite all the time. The bottom line is, paraphilias are very very common. And they are a source of great shame and guilt. They are far more common for men than they are for women, both cis men and trans men. So are they a problem in a relationship with an intimate other? They're a problem if it does not allow both of you to live authentically sexually, and if it does not allow both of you to flourish, thrive, and live wholeheartedly. If in fact your paraphilia and the expression of it is something that your partner is willing to embrace, and it causes both of you to live wholeheartedly, to flourish, thrive, to be authentic sexually, well then, it's fine. If in fact it is not going to cause you to live wholeheartedly, well then probably that's something that you need to talk with someone about. So that brings us to another issue that is not actually a paraphilia, though it's very close to one. It is, in fact, pornography. Pornography is almost ubiquitous to the male experience, and it is highly unusual 
to the female experience. And if you have a partner who is involved with pornography, the first thing to know is it's not about you. It's not because you're not pretty enough or not handsome enough or you're not interested in sex enough. It is not about you. It's about the other person. And it is very, very common to males. And I have a really unique experience here. When I was living as a male, I could understand the lure of pornography. It wasn't something that I ever participated in. It, it just, I was, I didn't do it. For, I mean, I'm, that's neither here nor there, really. But I certainly understood the pull and interest in it. As a woman, I don't get it at all. It's like once the testosterone was gone and estrogen arrived, I have no idea why anyone on earth would ever look at pornography. So when a couple comes to me for marriage counseling and the wife is very confused and the husband feels very guilty and full of shame, that's one of the things I say to them. This is, in fact, not something most cis women are going to understand. And yet it can be a huge problem in the marriage relationship. When is it a problem? It becomes a problem when it is preferred to sexual intimacy, which actually happens a lot of the time. When someone prefers pornography to a relationship with their partner, then it's a problem and it's time to get help for it. So now one more question that this brings up is, what about sexual addiction? Yeah, what about sexual addiction? Sexual addiction does exist, but hear me carefully, it is extremely rare, very rare. The parts of the brain that light up with orgasm are the same parts of the brain that light up with drugs. We want sex because it feels good. We want sex because it allows us to connect to another person, and we want it a lot. Some people want it a whole lot. There's nothing wrong with that. Because you want to practice sex a lot with a willing partner and all of, both of you are able to flourish and thrive and live wholeheartedly, all parts of you are able to do that, well, then you certainly are not addicted to sex. So how do you know if you are addicted to sex? First of all, I would say, listen carefully, do not take a Christian counselor's word on this subject because evangelical Christian counselors find sexual addiction everywhere because they think any kind of sex outside of intimacy between a husband and a wife is wrong. And so they will almost ubiquitously and far too often talk about sexual addiction when it's not sexual addiction. It's just human, just being human. So how do you know if you are sexually addicted? If you cannot stop and it's ruining your life, you are sexually addicted. But again, sexual addiction shows up when you cannot stop the sexual practice and it is ruining your life. And the first place you need to go is not a therapist, it's actually a physician. Because very often the cause of sexual addiction is in fact biological, physical, connected to a physical problem that can be treated medically, but does not have to be treated psychologically. Most people don't realize that. And if that does not clear up the problem, then it's time to talk with a therapist about it. But it's extremely rare for people to be addicted to sexuality. 
So my sexual experience, my sexual life is showing love to my neighbor and showing love to myself if I'm living authentically and the other person's living authentically, if both of us are flourishing and thriving and able to live wholeheartedly. But now we come to the third and final question we have to ask about the expression of our sexuality. Does it allow me to love myself? And again, it's the same question. Is my sexuality and my expression of it allowing me to live authentically as a sexual being? Second, does it cause me to flourish? Does it cause me to thrive? Does it cause me to live wholeheartedly? If it does, then your sexuality is plenty healthy and your expression of it is plenty healthy. So what about those of us who are not in a relationship, who would love to be in a relationship, who would love to have a sexual partner but do not? Thank goodness our Creator has made us so that we can sexually pleasure ourselves. And thank God that we can. So here's an idea. Here's a thought. Let's say that you are a leader in a patriarchal religion. And in that patriarchal religion, you are a male leader because it's patriarchal. And as a male leader, Maybe you've struggled with the paraphilia that you feel great shame about, or you struggle with pornography that you feel great shame about. And so, in trying to control your own sexuality, you may well say, masturbation is wrong. But oh, here, better yet. If you want to maintain control over your flock, if you want to keep them coming to church every single week and giving 10% of their income, what better way to do that than make them think their sexuality at its very core is evil? And so if their sex with a partner is not enough to convince them of that, oh, let's just make all masturbation wrong. Now, we as the spiritual leaders have all the power we need because we can keep you feeling guilty and in need of being forgiven for your sin all the time. Masturbation is not a sin. Never has been, never will be. So another thing about your own personal expression of sexuality, what if you are celibate or decide to be celibate right now or for a long period of time? Well, there are times in life when all of us may choose to be celibate for a period of time, sometimes a day, sometimes a week, sometimes a month, sometimes for years, for various reasons. Often it's for the growth of another area of our life, often for the deeper part of our interpersonal spiritual growth. And so being celibate for a period of time is absolutely fine. And what about those who are asexual? There is a very small subset of the population that is, in fact, asexual. But most of us who are therapists have discovered when someone says they are asexual, they might be. That's possible. But it's also possible that they grew up in a religious environment or another environment that told them that their sexuality was wrong. Particularly their homosexuality was wrong, being gay, being a lesbian, or um, being bi, that that was in fact wrong that their masturbation was wrong, and so they have just decided to deny their sexuality completely. And that's one of the reasons people will say they're asexual, but more often, those who think they are asexual are people who, in fact, have been through complex sexual trauma. 
And once they're able to deal with that complex sexual trauma, they find out that they are in fact very sexual beings and it's delightful to see their sex wake up for them. So again, what if you were not in a long-term committed relationship with another person? Well, is it all right to have friends with benefits? Well, we have some questions to answer. Does it allow me to be true to who I am, to be sexually authentic to who I am? Does it cause me to flourish, thrive, and live wholeheartedly? Does it cause the person with whom I'm going to be involved in a relationship to be authentic to who they are, to thrive, to flourish, and to live wholeheartedly? Is it good for my own soul? For some folks it is, for other folks it's not. You get to decide on your own what the answer is to that question. So human sexuality is always a problem. It's a problem for every last one of us. I have never had a single client who came for more than one session who did not at some point talk about this or that problem with their sexuality. It is normal. It is common. And the most common problem is for people to feel great shame and great guilt. And most of the time, there's no reason for that shame and no reason for that guilt. So a long time ago, probably around 2000, I started memorizing poems. I went to a David White weekend in Connecticut and started memorizing one of his poems. And the second poem I memorized was Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese. And well, back then, and for about 13 years afterwards, primarily I would be speaking to evangelical audiences. And so I would often quote this particular poem and I would watch my audiences tune out completely. They could not hear the poem because of its first lines. The first lines of the poem, Wild Geese, are, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. I got to the point, I left out that part of the poem if I was speaking to an evangelical audience because so many people would be so visibly upset. They could not handle that basic truth that Mary Oliver, who by the way was a lesbian, knew and understood so deep and so well. It's been wonderful post-transition to always say the entire poem. You do not have to be good. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair. Yours? I will tell you mine. Meantime, the world goes on. The sun and the clear pebbles of rain are moving across the landscapes, over the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, and the deep trees. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clear blue air are headed home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely the world offers itself to your imagination, it calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place, your place, your sexual place in the family of things. You do not 
have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. God, thank you for making it simple. On the other hand, I might have a few questions for you once I get to heaven on why you made us so inclined to turn it into such a complex, complicated, and unhealthy life. You've made it clear you love us just as we are. You want us to embrace our sexuality, what is natural to us. You want us to embrace intimacy that allows those of us involved to live authentically, to flourish, to thrive, to live wholeheartedly. And ah, oh, yeah, I know, that is when you smile. Thank you, God, for giving us plenty of times in our lives to say with awe, oh, God. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.